Then the Lord told Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. I will write on them the same words that were on the tablets you smashed. Be ready in the morning to climb up Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on top of the mountain. No one else may come with you. In fact, no one else is to appear anywhere on the mountain. Do not even let the flocks or herds graze near the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two tablets of stone like the first ones. Early in the morning, he climbed Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfaithful love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshipped. And he said, O Lord, if it is true that I have found favor with you, then please travel with us. Yes, this is a stubborn and rebellious people, but please forgive our iniquity and our sins. Claim us as your own special possession. The Lord replied, Listen, I am making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform miracles that have never been performed anywhere in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power I will display for you. But listen carefully to everything I command you today. Then I will go ahead of you and drive out the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's been wonderful over these weeks to be looking through the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and uh, to be reading through Immerse over these eight weeks, um, covering those um, five books uh, in the New Living Translation. There are still copies at the back. If uh, you're here today and haven't picked up one, you're very welcome to take one. And also as well as a little uh, table, uh, kitchen table version with uh, shortened readings um, that just take about five minutes each day. And uh, just encourage you to, to continue to walk with us through that. This morning we're thinking about the, the, Lord, the Lord's law of love and uh, we do have a PowerPoint presentation as well which will help us to just uh, think through everything to do with immersed beginnings. So really over these last number of weeks um, we've been thinking about how the Lord rescues lost humanity through his utter commitment to us expressed through blood covenants. And uh, if we could have the, if it's possible to have the second slide up, uh, then we'll see, we looked at this a number of weeks ago in terms of the covenants. There's three in the Old Testament and then one which is the New Testament, the New Covenant, because as we've been saying, the word testament just means covenant. So um, our identity is to be people of the New Testament, people of the New Covenant. And so as we can see there, this at the moment, looking at Exodus, 
this blood covenant is between the Lord and Moses as the mediator and the people of Israel. And the Lord is calling them and saying to them, promising them, you will be my special people. As we looked at last, last week, you'll be my holy nation, my royal priesthood, my treasured possession. And he calls the people of Israel saying, obey my law to receive my blessings. And the sign of that covenant, because each covenant has a sign, is the Sabbath. So, this wonderful relationship develops between the Lord, Moses, and his people. And last week we heard the story of how the Lord delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery there, and brought them to Mount Sinai. After two months of leaving Egypt, they came to the foot of Mount Sinai and realized the Lord had fulfilled his promise to Moses, saying, I'll be with you, I'll bring you out of Egypt, and I will bring you to the foot of this mountain. And this morning, still at Mount Sinai, we've heard how the Lord gave instructions to his people for their benefit, demonstrating that he is, and this is a wonderful moment of revelation, Yahweh, the Lord says, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, I am the God of compassion and mercy. And he tells us something of his nature. I am slow to anger, I am filled with unfailing love, I exercise justice, and I pour out blessing. So this morning as we think about the Lord's gift of his law of love to us, um, if we could have the next slide. We're going to think a bit more deeply about, well, what does that mean whenever God's people obey God's law, the people of Israel? And uh, it's slide four, and we'll see what it means for the people uh, to obey the law. First of all, they show their gratitude for him saving them. So often in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we think that it is by obeying the law that we are saved. But in all of the covenants, that's not the case. In all of the covenants, salvation comes before the law. So as we heard last week, God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. They were rescued. They were free. They were at the foot of Mount Sinai, even before the law was given. And that's so important for us to remember because so often we beat ourselves up thinking if only I do a good enough job, then God will accept me. The truth of Scripture, covenant after covenant after covenant is this. We are saved before we even come to a place of obedience. We are saved by the grace and the goodness and the power of God. By fulfilling the law, they are fulfilling their part in the blood covenant. The Lord still wants his people to obey the law because by doing so, they're showing responsibility and they're putting themselves in a position to enjoy his protection and blessing. Sometimes we think, oh no, law, instructions, do we really have to do that? Imagine if there was no highway code. Imagine if you all went, oh, I wish there was no highway code. Or it's a bit of a bind having to obey the law not to murder. Law actually brings blessing. It actually brings freedom. And by the law, the Lord with his people is going to shape them into the holy nation through whom the Lord intends to bless the whole world. 
The Ten Commandments are central to the body of instructions, and often when we think of the legal framework of the nation of Israel, we think of those Ten Commandments. Often because they're so well known, that's what we think about, and sometimes we think of them in glorious isolation to the whole story. But it's important to remember, and one of the wonderful things about reading through the first five books of the Bible is that all of the instructions and the laws are intertwined. They lie within the story. And where they appear in the story is extremely important. So we don't pluck out laws and instructions from the Old Testament. We always remember they're embedded in the story and it's vitally important as to where they actually lie within the story. Also as well, not all the Ten Commandments are legally enforceable. For instance, you must not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. You can't legally enforce it. It's also important to remember that there are more than 600 laws or instructions in the Pentateuch. We often concentrate on 10, but there are more than 600. And so we're going to come across rules and instructions very frequently as we read the first five books in the Bible. So it's important to remember that the story itself makes a difference to to which instructions are relevant to God's people at different times. If we could have the next slide, please, Mandy. You can see, we looked at this a number of weeks ago. Here's history described in, in six symbols. Creation, fall, promise, gospel, mission, and new creation. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, we are people in stage five who are in between the coming of Christ, the gospel, and the new creation at the end of time. We are people of stage five, and currently we are reading about stage one, stage two, and most of all, stage three. And so it's important for us to recognize who we are and who are the people of God in the passages of Scripture in which we read. Here's a really important principle for us, this next slide, please, in terms of us reading the Old Testament. When we read anything in the Old Testament, we must bring it through the New Testament before applying it in any way to our lives. That is an extremely important principle. So we don't just read the Old Testament and go, oh, that applies to me now. We always read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. We always bring it to and through the New Testament before we apply it in any way whatsoever to our lives. And that that applies to everything. It even applies to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given to the people of Israel thousands of years ago. They were not given to us. Now we, could, we could do a long series on the Ten Commandments, and the truth is the vast, vast majority of the Ten Commandments do apply to us now, which we'll come to in a moment. But we mustn't take anything from the Old Testament and assume that it directly applies to us now. It always has to come through the New Testament. That doesn't mean there's a contradiction, but rather a development. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, the first permission is given to eat meat. Up until that time, it hasn't been given. But after the flood, it is given. 
Then in Leviticus, some foods are deemed unclean. The reason for the clean and unclean distinction is symbolic. This is in Leviticus 20, 25, and 26. The reason was the food laws of being, food being unclean or clean was a constant reminder to Israel that God made a distinction between them, his own covenant people, and the rest of all the nations. So every time they ate certain foods and didn't eat other types of food, it was a constant reminder. We are a special people. We are a holy nation. We are a treasured possession of God. But with Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, came salvation for the whole world fulfilling God's promise to Abraham and his covenant. Therefore, in Christ, the distinction between Jews and Gentiles has been abolished. Paul writes about this again and again, along with the associated distinction regarding food. So for us, no foods are regarded as unclean. So when we come across laws or instructions in our current reading and immerse, it's important for us to remember that those laws or instructions were given by the Lord to Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel. So we don't assume that any of these laws or instructions apply to us now. They may apply or they may not apply. It may be helpful to think about the laws or instructions in three different categories ceremonial, civil, and moral. In terms of ceremonial laws, they're all the laws to do with the sacrifices and the priesthood. And priests, as we mentioned last week, are those who mediated between the Lord and His people. They stood in the gap. So as we read these ceremonial laws to do with sacrifices and the tabernacle and uh, how burnt offerings are offered up, it's important for us to remember that these reveal the seriousness of sin, the need for forgiveness, and the Lord's call to be holy as He is holy. And they also help to explain the significance of the cross. Christ's one perfect sacrifice that we read of in the New Testament means that we need no longer to make these types of sacrifice because there is only one mediator between the Lord and human beings, Jesus Christ. Everything else was a shadow, a foreshadowing of the perfect sacrifice that was to come. So it's really important for us to, to study the ceremonial laws and to meditate on them. And I must admit, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying doing that. It, it's really reinforced for me the holiness of God and my need of forgiveness. The fact that I am part of a human race whose default is to be unholy, and yet that God offers ways to find forgiveness. And those are laced throughout the whole of Scripture. But it's also important for us to remember as stage five people, as New Testament people, that we are people of the new covenant in the blood of a human being, Jesus Christ. And therefore, the ceremonial laws of sacrifice and priesthood in the Old Testament do not apply to us. We do not sacrifice animals here today for that reason. Instead, we offer all that we are and all that we have to Him. The next slide, thank you, Mandy, is Hebrews 13. 
Hebrews is a wonderful letter to read if we're trying to understand as we read through the Old Testament and want to understand how are these ceremonial laws fulfilled today for us as, as Christians. Many of the answers are to be found in the letter to the Hebrews. It's like the equivalent of Exodus and Leviticus in terms of the New Testament. We're to offer through Jesus Christ a continual sacrifice of praise to God. That's the type of sacrifice we are to give now. Proclaiming our allegiance to his name and not forgetting to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that pleases God. So that's ceremonial laws. There are also civil laws which specifically apply to ancient Israel. The principle applies to us in these cases, but not the detail. So for instance, in Leviticus, we're called to harvest the crops of our land by the Lord, but not to go to the edges of the field and do not pick up the, the harvester's drop. In the same way with the grape crop, do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines. Do not pick up the grapes that have fallen to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. So we read this in the Old Testament. This doesn't mean for us today that we shouldn't plow and harvest to the edges of our fields because gleaning is no longer common in the United Kingdom. The principle here is the important thing that whatever our business, we should always remember the poor. So with civil laws, these apply. They don't apply to us, they apply to Israel, but the principles to us are very important. Finally, moral laws. So we read in Exodus 20, you shall not murder. Even then, we go to the New Testament. I know it seems obvious, but the principle is so important that we always do it. We always go to the New Testament. And we read there that not only are we commanded not to murder, we are commanded not to be angry without just cause. Jesus said, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, said Jesus, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. The word, those words of Jesus form part of his Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew's Gospel in which Jesus declared, and we have the next one please, it's Matthew 5, 17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. The moral laws are ones that we will see reinforced or developed to their ultimate conclusion in Jesus. If something is a moral law, then we should be confident that we will find it again in the New Testament. And there it will either be reinforced or it will be developed as, the, as with the one with murder, don't even be angry. As the one with adultery, don't even lust. They're brought to their ultimate conclusion in Jesus Christ. In the wonderful Sermon on the Mount, which is between Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Matthew shows us that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament by revealing the full depth of the law and by a life lived in utter obedience to it. We follow Jesus 
and Jesus utterly obeyed the Old Testament. That's how important the Old Testament is to us, but we always come at it through Jesus. And so Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount that the law is fundamentally inward and moral. It is not solely concerned with external observance, and so Jesus surpasses the law. And he shows us that at the heart of the law is the law of the heart. And so we summarize the law saying, you must love the Lord your God. And in this, he's quoting the Old Testament. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. That Sermon on the Mount wonderfully echoes the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Just as Moses went up the mountain to receive the law on stone tablets and bring them down to the people of God, so we read in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus too ascends up the mountain in order to deliver the law to the people. Matthew is choosing his words carefully. He is making a contrast and a comparison between Jesus and Moses. For us as New Testament people, as gospel people, as followers of Jesus Christ, when we read Exodus chapter 20 and following all about the commandments and the Ten Commandments and Moses up the mountain, the place that we, we turn to then is Matthew chapter 5. That is our place of the giving of the law of love. That's our equivalent as new covenant people. And so in place of the Ten Commandments, Although the Ten Commandments are irrelevant, we've already mentioned, they're not irrelevant, but in place of the Ten Commandments, Jesus delivers eight beautiful attitudes. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the golden rule of Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Do to others what you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. And in the midst of that wonderful Sermon on the Mount come those extremely wonderful and challenging words. Be perfect, says Jesus, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I find that verse both inspiring and yet at the same time daunting. Because the reality is that I know that I do not do to others what I would like them to do to me. I imagine the same is true for you. You don't do to others what you would have them do to you. 
nor can I say that I love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and my neighbors myself. I'm striving in his strength to do so, but so often I know that I don't. No human being ever has except one, Jesus. He is the mediator of the new covenant. And perhaps if we return to that slide that we had near the beginning of all the various covenants, we are people of the new covenant. And the mediator of the new covenant is Jesus. And the gifts and the promises that come through is the promise of forgiveness and the promise of the Holy Spirit for all who trust that Jesus Christ is the one who is the mediator of the new covenant in his blood. And the sign for us is baptism to enter into this new covenant. Jesus Christ has kept our side of the bargain and shed his blood to seal the deal. Because as Hebrew 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We have been delivered from slavery to sin by trusting that Jesus Christ has done all this for us on the cross. We believe his resurrection declares this truth. We are baptized into a new reality in faith in Jesus Christ. We have received the Holy Spirit who puts the law of God's love in our hearts and writes them on our minds as Jeremiah the prophet prophesied. These Old and New Testament prophets make a number of things clear. The first is that the Lord works tirelessly for our deliverance. That's the wonderful message throughout the whole of Scripture. The Lord does not rest in His work of delivering human beings from fallenness. He delivered the people of Israel through the Red Sea and through the Exodus. He has delivered us through the cross of Jesus Christ. He is shaping us into a holy people. And he's given us the law to obey so that we will receive his blessing. For the people of Israel, those, those laws were written on stone tablets. For us, by the Holy Spirit, they're written on our hearts. And I find this strangely and wonderfully liberating. In every single covenant, both those in the Old Testament and the New Covenant of which we're a part and which we enjoy, the Lord anticipates failure. I think so often we think that God had a plan A and somehow human frailty took him by surprise and then he sent his son. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that, as we've been reading in these weeks, alongside all the law and the, and the instructions are the guidance as to how to enter into a place of repentance and sacrifice in order to be forgiven and to come back into the community of the people of God and to come back into the place of relationship with God. 
So we may wonder, why are all these books in the Old Testament, why do they keep moving in between sacrifice and law, sacrifice and law, failure and faith? And the answer is because at every stage in every covenant, including our own, the Lord fully anticipates failure. That may seem a strange thing when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The reality is that he, he has given his life for us and he has removed our sin for us from us as far as the east is from the west. And he has not only taken away our unrighteousness, he has given us his righteousness, his rightness. He has given us the Holy Spirit, the Emmanuel of God, to live within us. And all that is, for us as Christians, it is set, it is trustworthy, it is true. But so often for us as followers of Jesus Christ, I think that we put unrealistic expectations on ourselves. That we think that if we have this faith, surely we will never set a foot wrong. But every covenant, including the covenant of God's grace through Jesus Christ, is one in which the Lord fully anticipates our failure. It does not take him by surprise. He continues to judge justly, and he provides forgiveness for those who are willing to seek it. In the Old Testament, there were those sacrifices. For us, it's just the wonder of being able to confess our sins to God. I love those verses in John, 1 John 1. If we claim to have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. This morning I want to encourage us that no matter what has happened in the past or our present, we can come and we can come to trust that Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills the blood covenant. It's he who has lived the perfect life. It's he who has sealed the deal on our behalf in his own blood. Nothing in our past can debar us from coming into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. Nothing at all. We simply come and we trust that Christ has done it all. And even as Christians, when we fall time after time after time, we don't fool ourselves by denying it. We simply come and confess our sins, knowing that as we do, we'll be cleansed from all wickedness. Don't remain stuck in something and feel racked with guilt because of it. The Lord says to you, move on. Confess, be free. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. Receive his forgiveness. And then amazingly, as with the people of Israel, he sends us out as a people whom he's making holy. He sends us out as the Beatitudes say and call us to and what the Holy Spirit is working in us. He calls us out as people who are real, humble, repentant, merciful, pure, 
peacemakers who hunger and thirst for justice and even are willing to suffer for doing what is right. And so Jesus said to Simon Peter, even though he knew he was going to fail him, he said to faithful and fallible Simon Peter in Matthew 16, now I say to you, you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church. And all the powers of hell will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Jesus fully anticipated the failure of Simon Peter. And yet he said those words. Why? Because there is forgiveness and a new start to be found in Jesus Christ. And there is the power of the Holy Spirit working in him and in every follower of Jesus Christ. And in and against that power, the gates of hell do not stand a chance. The gates of all the evil in this world cannot overcome it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful calling that you have upon us to be a holy people, a treasured possession, a to be your nation, a kingdom of priests. Father, we thank you for the opportunity at the start of this service to confess our sins and to know that we are forgiven, to have our consciences and minds sprinkled with the blood of Christ, and to be given a new start, a fresh beginning. Lord, we claim that today we step away from the past and into your good future in Jesus Christ, not being hampered or shackled by what has gone before, but Lord, living in your goodness and knowing that you have delivered us regardless of our performance. And yet, Lord, we pray, make us holy as you are holy. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. And all this we pray and trust through your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us, who cleansed us from our sin and poured out his Holy Spirit into our lives that we may fulfill the calling that you have upon us as children of God. And all this we give thanks in and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.